Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant Christmas Podcast 2022, a different kind of Christmas pageant. This is the fourth of seven. We're taking up the challenge of, you know, shining new light on the Christmas story. We're not afraid of being a little provocative. Uh, you know, looking at it from different angles, making some suggestions. Look, it's such a familiar story. Uh, we have to dig beneath all of the comfort food dopamine hits. And this is a dialogue, bill at gospel-rant.com. You can push back, you can ask questions. In fact, it's encouraged. Welcome to the Gospel Rant. And frankly, it's pretty easy to rant about our cultural popular presentation of the Christmas story. It's been told and retold so many times that it's become infected. Well, that's maybe too strong. Affected with so many cultural, you know, misdirections. Look no further than at most nativity scenes. Joseph and Mary honestly often look more middle class and and, uh, sometimes white than they should. Three wise men, by the way, we don't know the number. We don't know their sex. They likely came much later. There's a broad range of animals who were uh, who who might have been there, even though the Bible has zero record of animals hanging around the newborn infant. And usually, we stretch it by adding animals that probably wouldn't have been there. And look, don't get me wrong. I love Christmas pageants. It's comfort food for me. I remember one one time there was a runaway camel, a young lad in a camel outfit with a hump on his back, just started running around the building. I mean, he loved it, and I loved it. And But look, it's a fodder for a rant. One of the problems of our modern lenses is that we lose a lot of the humanity of the event. It becomes two-dimensional. For instance, Mary. Oh, my goodness. Over the last 2,000 years, she has become an untouchable icon of chasteness and maturity and spirituality, even emotional detachment, I think. Uh, she has this control that, frankly, would be a little hard to connect with, particularly teenagers. Um, you know, I might compare her caricature to the Mona Lisa, you know, emotionless and stoic. There's no way she was that way. So she has largely been portrayed as almost a superwoman, super spiritual. But if the truth were known, I'm going to suspect that at the time, She was a normal, regular, lower middle class, or poor even, teenage Jewish girl who, though she lived in a different culture at a different time, she has the same hormones and reactionary behavior that teenage girls normally have today and feel today. I think we should be trying to connect with her far more than trying to make her perfect, particularly for teenage girls. I think she's a wonderful gospel presentation for teenagers. Well, before we get into it, here is a word from our sponsors. And when we get back, I want to tell you about another woman uh, just past teenage years, someone more modern who I think can help us understand Mary, or at least we can springboard from her. All right, we'll be back in a minute. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... 
Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Let me help us understand or maybe see Mary through different lenses uh, we'll see if this is unfair or not. We're going to try it out. You, you tell me, Bill at gospel-app.com. But I think this would be another way of seeing Mary, a, a Mary-esque figure. All right, this is from the New York Times, uh, 5-1798. New York artist Francesca Woodman, photographer, committed suicide at the age of 23. Great promise, great potential. Her suicide sparked some kind of discussion of whether those who appreciated her art could have foreseen her depression. According to the arts editor of the New York Times, her photographs are, quote, profoundly emotional in a trapped kind of way, almost inviting the viewer to help find her. You get the image, right? Her face is blurred or looking away or reflected in a mirror not and simply not in the frame. On rare occasions that she photographed her face, she seemed distant, or her face disappears in the shadows. Close quote. You get a picture of Francesca. Looking at her pictures, uh, you can find them on the internet. Uh, Warning, a lot of uh, uh, naked, unprotected, vulnerable images. Uh, She appears in some places to be violated, helpless. So listen, was she suicidal? Was she... Depressed? Could her friends have known? Hmm? The New York Times says, not in the sense that she plays with any imagery of death, but perhaps so in the fragility of her self-image. That's the phrase I want to build on, the fragility of her self-image, seemingly unaware of the danger involved. Oh, my. And I'm aware there's some listening to this podcast, women and men, who this might trigger. Um, Take a breath, please, and, and listen to the rest of it. This is a gospel presentation. So there are some who would be profoundly able to relate to Francesca. And so welcome to Gospel Rant. Uh, We are so glad you're here. Now, to some degree, honestly, we should all be able to connect. This is um, the portrait of a fragile, cracked cup on the edge of great danger, probably unaware, thirsty, alienated, shamed, maybe violated, a person who's desiring to be filled with enoughness and connectedness, looking for who she is, looking for meaning and purpose and definition, trying to express something, crying out silently, maybe, but indirectly for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, expressing pain and despair, uh, maybe feeling shame without hope in this often cruel, honor-shamed world and trying to do it artistically, maybe something else. For our purposes this Advent, I'm going to say, She is a person that needed a rescue and maybe didn't even know it. And that's my link to Mary. So perhaps Mary wasn't that stoic individual with all those things happening out of her control to her that rocked her world, brought a flood of criticism and stigma and judgment and isolation to her from family, friends, and and village. It was an honor-shame culture. And one of the top sins was to be pregnant pre-marriage. God wouldn't hate many things more than that. That's probably the 
how they understood it. And in this case, he's the perpetrator. I'm going to let that hang there a little bit. How crazy, unfair, unjust, and and gosh, what a story. Stunning, as, as we'll see. All right, let's talk about teens. Teens' brains are volatile. <laughs> Captain Obvious, right? It's their prefrontal cortex. It's just how God made them. They're not fully developed yet. The carburetor, the things that causes them to go, mm, let me think about this for a second. It's They lack that capacity. Uh, until they're 19, 20, 21, 22, they lack the capacity at that level to think about long-term consequences, to weigh priorities, to to sit back and consider. And their midbrain is fully online. I mean, it is slammed online as they went into adolescence. So their amygdala, with its fight, flight, and freeze cycles, inflamed by fresh chemical rushes of cortisol, it immediately shuts down whatever prefrontal cortex might be there, and then you've got fight, flight, and freeze unhindered. They they blow up. They pop off. They they do crazy things. That's not, not judgment. It's not all their fault. So, and there's powerful other chemicals for Mary: oxytocin, the bonding chemical, serotonin, and dopamine. She would have been swinging emotionally from highs to lows, anger to rage, maybe self criticism, maybe deafening confusion, depression, and then wash, rinse, and repeat. And then, and even worse, there's emotional swings due to pregnancy, morning sickness, et cetera. If you want to learn more about the teen brain, check out our new online class, Good Enough Parent, www.goodenoughparent.online. It's free. And for frustrated Christian parents of teens and tweens, 15 free uh, video parenting tips drawn from the gospel, attachment theory, neuroscience. I mean, some of the tips you've heard before, but some you haven't. And it's free, right? Uh, check it out. I'll say more in a second. So can we begin to see Mary with a new camera lens and focus? See, what we know of Mary comes from a gathered black and white images, if you will, to tie her to Woodman from various gospel narratives. We know that she's living in Nazareth, but she doesn't belong there. Her ancestors come from a different place. She belongs in the royal city of Bethlehem, for she's of the grand tribe of Judah, a descendant from Israeli royalty. But now... She's relegated to uh, to Nazareth, an easy-to-hide-in hills of Galilee, blue-collar town, way in the sticks, long way from the royal court. Maybe she's oblivious to the impoverishment of her people, of the tragedy of her lost, her lost glory of royalty, or the harsh oppression of Rome. She is an adolescent girl, after all, uh, for the often... Adolescents are shielded from such things. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe she's become used to more modest goals. People in slavery set lower goals. Maybe she's kept her sense of honor. I don't know. And remember how angry and alienated her fellow Galilean Jews were after having multiple insurrections viciously crushed by Herod. Remember that podcast? They've had family and friend burned crucified or sold into slavery by Herod, by Rome. Everyone, every family in Nazareth would have known someone who gave their lives for the freedom that that failed. More shame. Mary would have known to some degree, she would have felt to some degree that shame and disgrace, whether she could identify it or not, or put a label on it. It was in the air she breathed. And then there's the cultural prejudice that all Galileans felt from the Jerusalem Jews, the temple elite. Nothing good comes out of Galilee. She was among the nothing. 
But then, per Luke's story, an angel appears to her to tell her that she will become mysteriously pregnant with the Son of God, whatever she possibly imagined that meant. And her reaction is reasonable. She became diatarasso, Greek for greatly troubled, Greek for what the is going on here? In modern neurological terms, fear cycle kicked in. I get it. No judgment. That makes sense to me. This means that she was human. You are right. It doesn't mean that she didn't have faith. It means that her brain was human. Her amygdala would have ignited. Her prefrontal cortex shut down. Her limbic system signaling cortisol release and her entire body slamming into a fight, flight, or freeze. In other words, she's not being reasonable. This is what human means. We have to be able to relate to that. Your teens, if you're an adult, ask your teen or look at your teen. Well, now let's not overlook husband Joseph and the shame hit he takes. How emasculating would it be for a husband to take his wife on a trip to Bethlehem? I mean, Joseph was forced to humiliate himself. Again, honor, shame, culture. What a stigma. What caring or protective person would risk harm to his wife by doing that kind of journey? But the oppressive government regulation made him do it. It wasn't heroic. He left his man card in Nazareth. I wonder if he was second-guessing him as he approached Bethlehem. I I think I would. You know, what in the world am I doing? What am I going to tell my family in Bethlehem? It's only a short trip from Jerusalem. Joseph has to go, according to regulation and orders, he has to go to his hometown with his girlfriend in tow, nine months pregnant. Oh, my goodness. Remember honor, shame culture? And remember, he stood by Mary and her humanly speaking, crazy story, and he had an angel confirm it, but that wouldn't have stopped his friends and family uh, disassociating from him as well. He became a stigma in Nazareth. He was a man of shame, his future, unsure. I mean, maybe, maybe he could recover some name and find some work in Bethlehem. (sighs) And the angel didn't alleviate Mary's fears when he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Come on. There's no way that she didn't have a, a, a flight, fright, or freeze cycle, her amygdala. There's no way she remained saintly, emotionally detached as we want to portray or imagine, because she's some kind of superhuman woman? (laughs) No, the power of God's going to overshadow you? What? What? I mean, first of all, the power of God, that's, if you were a Jew, that's frightening. That's frightening enough. What? I mean, I think we just say the words, but try to hear them with with Mary's ears. What in the world does it mean? What would it feel like? Is this judgment then, (laughs) right? Isn't the power of God going to notice some sin? Uh, Is this punishment? What will God see in me when he comes that close? Who could take such closeness? Boundaries, right? Who would survive such a vulnerable, intimate touch? Even the temple has a curtain to protect the priest. What chance do I have? The power of God came upon Samson, as you might recall, and that didn't end well. Episciazzo is overshadowed. Um, This imagines to the Jews right? The, the, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This imagines to Jews this dark cloud that hides God's glory in the Old Testament. When, when the frightening, intimate, personal, divine presence of God comes into the tabernacle and the temple that shut down the worship, drove the people, including the priest, to the ground, prostrate, this girl could not humanly be prepared for this. 
I'm telling you, her brain would have tripped into a fight, flight, or freeze cycle. Shock mode. And then we're told after the angel left, she hoofed it up to the hill country to spend time with the family there, probably to get out of Nazareth. She went to see Elizabeth, cousin who had similar visitations from heaven. Oh my goodness. What was she feeling? What was she thinking on the journey? Was she still reeling in anxiety and rage and hormones? Well, here's what she tells Elizabeth, Luke 1, 46 to 53. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. He brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Well, the cortisol is worn off. You know, usually that takes three or four or five hours. She's probably been on that journey a lot longer than that. Uh, So in 48 and 52, she refers autobiographically to herself as being humble. It's the Greek word typenos. Yeah, you can translate it humble. That's a nice way of saying it, but it can have other connotations. In common use, the range of meaning extends from being humble by choice. You know, you could say she's such a humble person. But on the other end of the spectrum, it it can express what one feels who has been physically violated. I was typenos when that was done to me or upon me. For religious Jews... Judaism, Qumran, the meaning is often a posture of bowing and submission to God. But for ordinary Jews, it's often related to being shamed, um, to be overcome by some act. So this testimony of Mary could technically go either way. In one case, she comes across as a spiritual person who isn't proud or arrogant. She's just a spiritually submissive individual, a good example of an ideal Jewess if that person ever existed. And maybe that's how you've imagined her. No judgment. But I think the scene looks more like Mary expressing to Elizabeth her inner pain that happened when her world was rocked uh, without her permission. And she felt exposed and helpless to stop it. I mean, think again, Francesca Woodman. And we get it, right? Not only was there this long-awaited return of God to Israel through her somehow, but also, let's face it, from a human aspect, she's pregnant out of wedlock now in a strict honor-shame culture. That's a lot to ask a teenager. There was a frightening social stigma that happened all too quickly, particularly in honor-shame cultures like first century Israel. In a moment of time, due to nothing that she chose, remember the angel said you will be impregnated, doesn't ask permission, she becomes a person of shame, a stigma. She would be rejected by her family former friends, tribe. It was necessary as a matter of honor. You just don't want to associate with with someone who's covered with such shame. So freshly ashamed, humiliated, oppressed, alone, judged, isolated, becoming even a lower caste in Judaism, not worthy of honor or deference, unclean before God. I mean, in categories that you don't want to associate with, like shepherds, (laughs) not worthy of normal social kindness. She would be, in a sense, exiled among the exiled. And Israel knew what that felt like. And it wasn't her fault. I don't need to mention that this is even more obvious in highly moralistic religious contexts like the first century, but also in a hotbed of zealots. 
The zealots, right, these Galilean, primarily insurrectionists, long for holy war. God is going to support their movement, bless their movement, as long as they were pure and holy. They removed impurity from their midst strictly. For instance, oh, I don't know, like a young girl found pregnant out of wedlock. So, I mean, it would have been angry stigma in Nazareth. Murdering Romans and pro-Roman Jews, that's kosher. And that's pleasing to God, but not adultery. I mean, it's just saying, not good for her. So Mary, I mean, to say she was hurting is just such an understatement. Feeling despair, understatement. Anger, rage, yeah. Depression, confusion. I think she had to wonder about where her God was. What did she do wrong? Was she being punished? After all, she was innocent of any immoral actions. Not that anyone would believe her or could believe her, humanly speaking. Typanos can capture all of those turbulent emotions that until her time with Elizabeth, she probably had to handle alone and in secret. Well, and there's Joseph. I'll say something about him. These are all shamed family of emotions. This is different from the shame family of emotions that her ancestors, Adam and Eve, felt. They shamed themselves by their own choices, not Mary. This is far more maddening. This is unjust, unfair. Come on, right? How would you feel? And don't just give the right Sunday school answer here. Mary was human. Mary was a human teenager. Per Joseph Burgo, a psychologist, there are four categories that ignite shame family of emotions in everybody to one degree or another. I mean, this is is Mary. First, falling short of expectations, right? The expectations for a righteous Jewess was that she would remain chaste until married. It's her reputation, her righteousness, as well as her family's reputation and righteousness. Unchaste women had only three career lifestyle options. They could be beggars, pagan temple prostitutes, or standard run-of-the-mill prostitutes. Her brain, her critical inner voice would have reminded her what a disappointment she was to her family, her people. Oh my gosh, huge daddy issues as she likely saw, imagined, anger, betrayal, disgust in the eyes of her father if he was still alive, who she likely truly wanted to please. It was shame, undeserved and unwanted. In her brain, if it's like mine, she would be wondering if her life was over. Second, unwanted exposure. When people begin to see signs of pregnancy, it's going to get worse. There's no no way to really hide it. I mean, she could run to the hills for a time, but she's going to return with a baby. Third, unrequited love. After all, she'd been faithful, and she deserved the love and respect of her family. She earned it, and yet all efforts to reach out to them in love, for help, for understanding, it's going to be rejected. Uh, With everyone except, remarkably, Joseph, but that's another story. Uh, So unrequited love. By the way, the underlying plot of all rom-coms is hard to watch, uh, particularly if you have to play a role. She's helpless. She's lonely, alone. Those she loves, who she would rightly expect would love her, Do not. Unrequited love. And lastly, exclusion and alienation. Mary would just no longer be welcomed in her family uh, with her former friends or the synagogue. Um, There would be an empty seat at Thanksgiving this year. Uh, You know what I mean? Or Hanukkah or whatever. This is so much worse than being unfriended on your smart device. Think about being kicked out of a group you were part of, a boyfriend or girlfriend break up with you for no reason perhaps experiencing a divorce. All of this would give you that sense of exclusion and alienation and the loneliness and orphanness that comes with it. You were in any in good standing, and then the next moment you're rejected, despised Audi. What would you feel? 
look, what I'm trying to get us to see is that, or let me say this, I would really be surprised and stunned if Mary didn't feel most of these things, whether she could put it in words or not. Um, she's just not connectable anymore. She's Taipanos. I'm suggesting that Mary was a real person, a real teenager who really knew shame, being shamed. And in this case, I, who could she blame for that but God? And God did it for his own higher purposes, but how could a teenager with a prefrontal cortex shut down by cortisol get it? I'm sure she's just popping off. And no blame. Uh, that, that would be human. It's a new category of redemptive shaming where God's going to use us for a higher purpose. And yet, at the time, it would have just felt like shaming to Mary's exploding brain. Here's an interpretation of what she told Elizabeth. Uh, this is, again, after the cortisol has worn off and, and the Holy Spirit's come upon her, and she's impregnated with God, so to speak, quote, unquote. I have to praise God because I get it. I, I've got joy now that's replacing my depression and anger. He found me shamed in a situation of shame that I had nothing to do with, but he raised me to honor that I've never known or felt before. That's what he does. He sees the shamed He's moved with compassion so much so that he rescues them, but he doesn't stop there. No, he raises them to be people of greater honor than even before. I'm feeling it. Close quote. Maybe you're following the gospel rant journey through the Sermon on the Mount. This is the same DNA that moved Jesus to say to the shamed crowd on the hillside of Galilee, a crowd of Marys and Josephs. And he says, enviable are you who were formerly unenviable right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is yours, meaning the honor that Abraham experienced from my hand is now shared with you. Oh my. All right, take a breath. This is as good as place as any to stop to get a word from our sponsors. Man, I hope we're getting it, right? Anyway, we'll see you in a minute. But Pastor Bill, how can Mary sit there and praise God? She recovered pretty quickly, it seems. Is, is is that, I mean, that doesn't fit with her being in a fear cycle, does it? Well, yes and no. I think that if we miss this, we miss the miracle of Christmas. All right, here's a gospel presentation. <laughs> the good news to the Marys then and today, right, that's you, male or female, if you're getting it going, oh my gosh, that's me, that's what I'm feeling, that's what I'm trying to express. The, the good news is that God is not separate from her shame and shame family of emotions. God's favor, his coming upon, is for shamed people, those who are feeling a shame family of emotions, right? And here it is. God incarnates his glory into cracked, oppressed, emotionally beat up, shamed, and abused vessels. And he's not waiting for her cry or self-awareness of her emptiness and shame, right? He intervenes, he rescues, he pursues, and he fills this emptied, underachieving vessel, Mary, and, and fills her with stunning, unimaginable glory, which she shares. He sees in her now his image. He speaks into her now his image. It's smudged, it's corrupted, used, abused, sold to various bidders for pocket change, but still, at least to his eyes, it's a masterpiece, and it is a masterpiece. She is due immense glory due to that alone. And so he extends his glory, his honor to her. He fills Queen Mary's womb with his spirit, his son, the crown prince of the universe. In a moment, shame becomes honor. That's 
redemptive shame. That's the gospel. It can happen to you. It's a second creation account of sorts, right? The Lord, the Spirit, is hovering over her particular emptiness, like in Genesis 1, the darkness, the void left by this fallen place upon her soul. And he, it, the Spirit spoke. He spoke the living, luminous word. And within her lifelessness came life. In fact, the source of life. It's, it's crazy. This new, it's hard to talk about, right? This new life, Jesus, this new existence was very experiential, very existential, an enemy and curative for shame of all kinds, those we know and those that are subconscious, so think of her critical spirit. And it's just a new expression of Jesus, right? It's not a, Jesus doesn't become new, it's a new expression of Jesus. This is good news for shamed people like me. You can experience this too. And we all have once, we Christians. This was solid truth. This was truth incarnate. Her life before was like blurry black and white images, like a Francesca Woodman's picture, and like all of the alienated others around her, her family in Nazareth, Israel, and beyond. But now, because of the child, she is enveloped in glorious living 3D color. The humiliated one, the unlikely humiliated one, is filled with perfect glory. Broken humanity, filled with perfect humanity. The one with such little hope and dreams, filled with all of the hope of the world, the hope for her tribe, her people, for Joseph, for Rome. When Mary touches Jesus, right, in pregnancy, and Jesus touches Mary, in a sense, both are changed. And I'm not making a, I'm not making a theological statement about the nature of Jesus' deity. I'm making a personal relational statement. Jesus is now Jesus with Mary. You know what I'm saying? And she's now Mary with Jesus. No greater place, no greater relationship. She's no longer alone ever. This is true honor. She is now experiencing unbelievable glory, but in fact, it's only an hors d'oeuvre of the eternal glory waiting for her that she's now immersed in. I mean, now, today, presently. God fills, embraces, speaks into shamed people, and they become people of honor. How does Mary put it? God overshadows us, lifts us up, shares his honor with us, in a more common phrase that lacks the depth, I think, uh, that we use that has such baggage, but I'm trying to say the same thing, God loves sinners. But I like my definition better. When God comes upon, right, the Taipanos of Mary, her heart is filled with the rush of miraculous agaliao, Luke 146 again. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit Agaliao rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the Taipanos, the humble. He has filled the hungry. See, she's saying, I was so hungry. I was starving for connection, for identity, for purpose. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. In 147, a galiao literally means to jump for joy, I think. Mary is trying to put down in words what she's feeling. And remember, she's a teenager (laughs) in the midst of what was a painful, dehumanizing, objectifying, social stigma-producing scandal where no doubt family and friends turned away from her, clucked their tongues. There were rumors in your windows, no doubt persecution. 
she was about to explode now she's so filled with god the the shamed the outcast filled with god that's that's the story of the sermon on the mount that's my story um and she's filled with perfect unspoiled humanity jesus and she's at the point of almost madness that's one interpreter on a galiao she was hungry for significant security and belonging now she's filled and maybe now she sees how hungry she really was it's only possible to see once you're filled looking back she was humiliated and now she's honored as a queen right how does that hit you not your typical christmas pageant is it um we do focus rightly on jesus but the infant was looking at his mom yeah this god is an infinitely attractive god the the god of the typical culturally affected modern christmas story seems i don't know less interesting less invasive, less stunning. Will you consider rejecting the caricature of Mary in the Christmas story that we're used to? You know, the, God loved Mary because, because she was humble, because she was submissive and perfectly sinless. And God looked and said, okay, we finally have one, Gabriel. <laughs> God looked around Israel and waited until they found a woman who was worthy, perfect, no, no, don't don't go there. I mean, no judgment on the on the people who hold that. It's just not biblical. And it's not I can't connect to that. Boy, I can connect with this Mary. And that's that kind of Mary is not good news for failed people like me because it makes me want to go, well then God's never going to touch me. See, better God came upon this what he always does. This is his MO. He came upon unworthy underachieving, ashamed, and alienated regular teenage girl, right? And I haven't even mentioned the fact that women in that time and place were not honored and treated with respect as much as their male counterparts, right? And God lifts her shame, extends to her as she was his joy, his agaliao, a fruit of his spirit. So take all of the dopamine hits that give you joy, value, sense of worth, fun, excitement, from career to friends to sex to drugs, emotional, psychological highs, roll them all into a single ball, multiply it times a billion, and that is God's agaliao. He shoves it into her brain. It erupts. Merry Christmas, Mary. So very cool. You know, what were you hoping Santa was going to bring you this year? And God fills her to the breaking point with his very image in the flesh, his son of glory. And he, right? And, and so she reacts because there's a more powerful joy that displaces and overwhelms the depression and anger and rage and confusion, the cortisol, okay? There's a more powerful chemical than the cortisol. And and God offers this to us now as we are, not as we should be. God spoke, I filled you with glory, do my beloved. You're my queen. Your role is to give me birth for the world to see and know that I am with you and with Israel and with them. <sighs> Again, let me repeat my invite to you, or by the way, anyone else, to check out the Good Enough Parent program. It's free. Uh, go to www.goodenoughparent.online. We send you 15 10-minute parent tips, one a day for 15 days. The program is, is enriched with the attachment theory and neuroscience, but it's this gospel of Mary, right? It's for Christian parents who want to be more good enough parents. Sorry for the bad grammar. And here's the thing. There's two subconscious questions. We run through these in the good enough parent. All of us are acting, 
asking. And Mary asked. They affect what we do and don't do, what we say, what we don't say, how we feel about ourselves, the world, how we regulate emotionally, our well-being, our sexuality, our identity. And here they are. Number one, is there anyone out there for me who has my back, who is a fan, who I can count on when things go badly, when I fumble the ball, or when people insinuate that I did? And secondly, is there anyone out there who really loves me, that sees me as I am as lovable? Well, Mary's no different. She's a teenager. She's received an answer to both. And more provocatively, she was impregnated with the answer (laughs) to those two questions from a surprising source. God himself spoke up and said yes to both. Oh, my gosh. So remember, goodenoughparent.online. It's free. I need to close. A couple years ago on Christmas Eve, we gave a survey to a church asking them, to be honest, uh, it was confidential. They wrote it down. What is your greatest fear this Christmas season? So these were Christians at the end of a Christmas worship service, right? So it's skewed. I get that. We were headed into the lighting of the candles and the appropriate singing away in a manger. But the Spirit was indeed moving, and there was shocking honesty and vulnerability in the room. It was so Mary-esque. Now listen, there were some expected answers. You know, I was afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of spiders, illness. But by far, over two-thirds of the confidential responses were about feeling like failures, shame, typanos, and and some even said they were afraid that when God finally sees them face-to-face, that, that God will turn and they will be mortified. Listen to some of the answers. I'm afraid I'm not good enough. I'm afraid that I will not be loved. God, I'm afraid I will always be alone. God, I'm afraid that I'm not a good enough mom or wife. I fear that I fall short in how I measure up to God. I feel abandonment, public embarrassment. Do I really deserve love from anyone? What if I don't hear, well done, good and faithful servant? What if I end up not being a good mother? Will anyone love me as I am? Fear that I'm unlovable. I am so ashamed of my sexual past and drug narcotic use that has caused some really bad, stupid behaviors. I fear that I won't get through. Uh, Will I be forgiven for what I've done? I'm afraid God will see me as a big disappointment. I fear rejection and abandonment. I fear that I'm not good enough for God to love me, that I'm not a good enough friend or Christian. I'm afraid that God is disappointed in me that I haven't listened to your direction. I'm, I'm ashamed that I'm divorced. Why do I feel that I'm not worth anything? Oh my, there's so many more. Look, if if you can resonate with any of those comments, first of all, you're human. No judgment. And it's not all your fault. You've got that brain stuff happening too. But here's the good news. Jesus comes for people like you. People like you move his heart to rescue. He has at his disposal a perfect love that casts out fear. He came not because you're worthy, but to rescue you, the unworthy. That is what he does. Here's John Barclay. Paul, we shall see, had an unusual, creative, and socially radical understanding of the grace of God arising from the gift, Christ. Whereas good gifts were and still are normally thought to be distributed best to fitting or worthy recipients, Paul took the Christ gift, the ultimate gift of God, to the world to be given without regard to worth and in the absence of worth, an unconditioned or incongruous gift that did not match the worth of its recipients, but created it. 
That's what we're looking for, isn't it? Ah, it's time this Christmas that you feel the joy that the shamed Mary felt. If you're a Christian, you've had to experience it once. Maybe it's been so long ago. Maybe you were so young, but you felt it once. Listen, it's the Holy Spirit's passion in your inner being to make you feel it more often than that. And your role is to ask him to do just that. Holy Spirit, make me. This Christmas, come and experience being impregnated by the same Spirit again. (laughs) How's that for a Christmas card? Uh, Look, I'll admit it sounded better in my head. Look, ask the Spirit to make you feel a galiao, that joy. A galiao is worth it. Come, Taipanos, post-fall men and women, called to royalty in the court of the celestials. Come and taste a galiao in the presence of the child again this year. How? Ask the Spirit to make you feel that joy. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Um, In the next podcast, we're going to take a look at the mysterious Magi. Again, an unlikely group to be part of the Christmas pageant. You'll see it's a wild gospel presentation. Listen, as you're thinking about this, if you're using this as a devotion, what resonated? Think about it. What resonated with you in this presentation of Mary? Uh, Where did you connect with her? Okay. We'll see you next time. Take heart, child of God. And one by one, I watched my dear friends get engaged, get married, start having children. And especially as a woman, I felt like there was a certain timeline that these things needed to happen in my life. Charity Gale shares a personal testimony on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us weekly to hear songwriters, worship leaders, filmmakers, and other creatives tell their stories in the form of a devotional. The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform.